aliens and flying sources. This is all an illusion. Please pardon the confusion. Hey, welcome to the eighth episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of a handful of New York Times bestsellers and a Bleach Report contributor. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comic books to whatever. And today's guest is Lee Jenkins, the marvelous Sports Illustrated senior writer and and a guy I've known for a long time. Um, And this episode came together very last minute. And here's why. About a week ago, Bleacher Report ran a piece I wrote on USC's quarterback, Sam Darnold. And I received very good response from editors, from family, from readers. And then yesterday, I saw that SI posted on its website a profile of Sam Darnold by Lee. Uh, which will appear in the upcoming issue of the magazine. And if I'm being 100% honest, I thought Lee's story was better than mine. And I'm not happy about that, but I'm also not sad about it, because people have different approaches, and Lee's was just great. So I thought it'd be cool to get into the nitty-gritty here and discuss how two writers approached one subject on two writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Lee, first of all, uh, thank you for, uh, thanks for joining me, and... Um, you know, usually they try to be all smooth about this, but I have to say this is probably our fifth. Would you say this is our fifth or sixth time trying to do this connection? Whenever you're trying to do anything with me other than send an email or talk on the phone, I mean, it's so embarrassing. I'm like 75 years old. It's inevitable that it'll get screwed up. So, so I'm sure it's my fault. So you're saying technology is not your friend? Not my strong suit. It bodes well, definitely, for the next chapter of my journalistic life. Yeah. I'll be uh, living on a box on Wilshire and Sepulveda, but that's okay. Do you still subscribe to a newspaper? Like, do you actually get a physical newspaper? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'll never not get the LA Times. I mean, I'll get the LA Times till, till they stop printing or I stop breathing. So that's kind of my, I grew up on that paper and grew up on Jim Murray. And so, and we get the, you know, we have all, our, all the subscriptions for the online services too, but that's the paper I get every morning. I just want to say, Lee, you said until you stop breathing or until they stop printing. The stop printing might come soon. And if you read the news about Guam and North Korea, that might come to, uh, soon, uh, <laughs> soon too. So, you know, who knows? It might be uh, – enjoy that newspaper while you got it is what I'm saying. I, I will. Yeah. I will. I enjoy it every day. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I talked in the intro. You didn't hear it. But I talked in the intro how you and I, it's like, uh, it's like two guys – or we'll just say two people wearing the same outfit to a party. Um, you and I have known each other for a long time. We did Jim Rome show a few times. We both worked at Sports Illustrated. Um, and this week, last week, I had a story run on Bleacher Report, a profile of uh, Sam Darnold. And this week on in Sports Illustrated, you have a profile on Sam Darnold. Um, and I just think it's kind of interesting to talk about, because we're two people who've been writing for a long time, and we sort of had to approach the story. We both approached this story. And... I thought yours was better than mine. Um, I really did. I just read it again. And I really do. I thought, I just thought you did. No, no, no. I really, I know you're not, you're going to be like, oh, and and that's totally cool. I just thought the detail you put into, here's what I think I did wrong. And I wonder if you ever take, (laughs) no, I'm going to be sincere here. I went into this story from the very beginning with an idea of what I wanted to write. And I think that's a death knell for a good story. Like I went in. And I live in Orange County and I looked at this guy and I read a bunch of quotes from his parents and other stories. And I thought, Here's a guy who is not your modern, you know, program to be an athlete. 
sports specific from the age six. Yeah. Right. And I, I thought that, that was a, too. Yeah, but I but but here's a I was wed to that narrative. I really was. And I feel like your story reads like a guy who went into this with a very open mind and an open idea. Am I am I wrong on that? Well, you gotta understand for me this is like a treat. Okay. I mean I write nothing but MBA stories, basically MBA features all year. So when I get a call to do a local college football player. That's like the most refreshing thing. And when I met him, I felt like I was kind of around one of the guys I grew up with or something. I mean, I'm from one of those, like a little beach town in Southern California. And that was, so everything that he kind of evoked and even the pattern of his speech and, you know, what he talked about with his parents and his home life. It, to me, I was like jazzed to write this story. So, you know, I, I, I kind of get, and I'd also, I think that w I went into it in a similar way as you, where there was a sense of, oh, he didn't have the quarterback coach at age seven. He's not, you know, his Orange County existence is a lot different than maybe Matt Barkley's Orange County existence. Because I profiled Matt Barkley a couple of years ago. Right. Fantastic subject. Love talking to him for totally different reasons than Sam Darnold. But um, both of them, I thought, were, were good subjects in their own way. Okay, so here's the difference. I went into this dreading this story. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I really did. Because I, th I haven't written about a college kid in a long, long time. And I thought, here I sit in my 40s. What am I going to have to talk to this guy about? And you seem like you, you, and I, I, again, I feel like you did a much better job and had a better approach. No, you, no, you know no I really mean this. I really do. Lee. I think I uh, feel like you went into the story excited to talk to this kid. And I kind of went into the story dreading talking to this kid. I'll tell you, I had like a weird, I had a weird advantage in this story that I'll probably never have again. Jeff Fellinser is a friend of mine. He has a class at USC and I speak at it, you know, probably every semester. Mm -hmm. And they're always SC football players in the room. And, and I never really know who anybody is or anything like that. And right when I sit down for the interview with Darnold, the first thing he says is, I saw you, I heard you speak in a class. I know <laughs> how this is going to go. He knew like what, kind of what the interview was going to be like, I think. Wow. So he was sort of, he was sort of hip to what I was going to ask before I even asked it, I felt like. Um, but listen, I mean, in these situations, it's like, you know, you get you're all within an hour and a half. You get the guy, you get the teammates, you get the parents down in San Clemente, you get a feel for the town. So to me, it's like kind of a, a change of pace story. But I mean, listen, it's I did go into it with the dread knowing that. I didn't know you were going to be writing it. I didn't know ESPN was going to write it. I didn't know all that. But you do know this is a Heisman front runner, potential number one pick. Everybody's going to be writing it. And so you do, I think, put a little pressure on yourself in that moment to just, you know, find something new, find some kind of angle to add to the tapestry, right? And, yeah. you know, I, I think when you're looking at, like when I was reading your story, and I read the LA Times story, which is really good too. You're you're just hoping that some of those details, some of those anecdotes you get that nobody else gets. I, I don't I think it's too much to think. I don't really think of it in terms of his story is better than mine or, you know, mine isn't as good. I thought I think about it more is, you know, when we do these this reporting, I think we probably all collect, you know, if, we're, if it's on a good day, a dozen, maybe on a bad day, four or five, you know, we, we get enough things that we're proud of, you know, things that we think, well, that, that kind of brings this person to life in some way. And you just, you want to preserve that for yourself. That's, a, that's always my goal is can I kind of take those things to the finish line and not see them first in the LA times. And I did, I saw several of them in the LA times. I saw several of them in your story and go, uh, but as long as you can kind of keep enough where a, a reader 
can feel as if they're, you know, you're increasing their understanding of this player they're going to spend all fall rooting for, then to me it's a win. Now, I don't know, did you um, do you read stories about the guy before you write a story on him? Oh, like, yeah. You do? Everything. Yeah. And The Ringer wrote oh. a really good, it was a crazy, it was a super comprehensive, very long story of about Darnold, his whole kind of life story. And so, yeah, I mean, I do. I try to read all of those pieces. And, and part of it is that sometimes there will be something in one of those stories that you feel hasn't been mined fully necessarily, or, you know, there'll be a detail that kind of catches you in a story like that. And that happened to me with that ringer story. You know, they, they reference very quickly um, his home where he grew up and some, it just made me kind of interested in, you know, curious to ask more. And that's, that's so much of what journalism is, I think is like, you know, you carry the ball for five yards and then I'll try to carry it for three yards. And then someone at ESPN will try to carry it for another 10 yards. And that's, you know, and again, you're just trying to give readers probably the fullest picture of, um, of these guys as you can. I don't know if you, if you are the way I am. So I read that ringer story and, um, Amazingly, you know, that was written by a college kid. College student, right. Yeah, at Syracuse. Um, I just caught it in front of me. Uh, Sam Fortier, who, uh, who did an, a killer job on that story. And I don't know if you're like this. Like, I read that. I read that story, too. And I thought, fuck. Like, I just kept thinking, fuck, fuck. This is so comprehensive. Like, I get pangs of jealousy, almost. I get huh. these, like, this kind of uptight nervousness. Like, what am I going to do? This guy covered all this ground. Do you he not did get cover that? a lot of ground. Do you not get that? No, I do. I do. But I think in, in some of these situations, you know, with a guy like this, it's – listen, it was really comprehensive. But it, it, you, know, you, you want to kind of, I think, sometimes as a writer, zone in on – you know, or hone in on an angle. And, you know, with a player who hasn't been written about and – that, and that Ringer story was kind of the first one, first probably definitive story of Sam Darnold. You're, you know, you kind of go for everything, right? They're sort of throwing everything at the reader. Um, and I'm trying, I think, you know, a year later, he's kind of now been in the public for a while. To me, you try to, you try to find more of a sliver or more of an angle on him um, and explore that as much as you can. So to me, I, I see what you're saying, but part of me feels like, okay, this is the baseline. This is kind of what I'm working with. And now at least I feel like I – I know him. I, I know a lot about him and I have things I can work off. So in a way, the ringer story, you know, helped um, because you're kind of looking for things that you can advance. And a lot of the stuff in there, to be honest, I wasn't that interested in exploring. Um, and some of it I was. So I think for every young writer, you know, you don't want to just throw the entire life on the page. You, you need to make value judgments about what part of that life is most interesting, is most revealing, um, and, you know, kind of highlight that, those things sometimes, otherwise you're basically just writing a biography and it was a really good story. I'm not trying, it, it was, it was an excellent story, but I think it laid the groundwork for maybe a little bit, you know, a little bit more of dialing into um, certain angles. You know, what, uh, you just said something that I think about a lot. So when I was coming up at SI, I was basically Tom Verducci's caddy. So he would get the good baseball stories and I would get the, you know, less good baseball stories. It's a great job. I had that job for a couple years. It was awesome. It's great. It's probably my favorite job. His his number two is amazing. It's a PhD. I mean, you're getting a PhD course in how to cover sports. And um, what I always really found interesting about Verducci, and I thought a lot of other writers missed, is he would see Derek Jeter and other guys would see Jeter and they would see the Jeter's dating Mariah Carey or Jeter's hitting 320 or whatever, a hitting streak. And he would see a scar on his knee. 
You know what I mean? Or he would see something hanging in his locker that caught his attention. I think it's kind of like what you, you're touching on. You take the small and make it big. You don't take the big and just kind of list it all. That was a Riley thing too, right? Always lead with the little thing. Yeah. Like I had a one like that. When LeBron won his second championship, you know, I had this like kind of big thematic, this, this sort of big thing in mind, this, um, this big sort of statement that I wanted to make that kind of he is basketball, like that he is basketball right now for this generation. And I remember kind of toying around with these leads and they all felt sort of overwrought. And I called my buddy, Michael Rosenberg's great writer at SI and a colleague of mine. And I was kind of giving him everything I had on LeBron from the week. And the last thing I told him was, you know, I was talking about how he didn't eat and he lost all this weight through the finals, didn't eat a lot. He was, you know, really kind of, you know, sort of grinding through that series. And when I was with him, he just, he ate this one berry off the fruit plate. <laughs> it's just one, one berry. Right. And it was like the day after the championship. And Rosenberg was like, lead with the berry. Lead with, lead with the small thing and you can get yourself to the big thing. And yeah. so I do try to think about that. It's like, you know, how do you, make, how do you make this relatable? How do you make it tactile? How do you get a reader to like, give them an image that will kind of stay with them? Yeah. All right. So how did you um... – I literally have your story in front of me, the house that's uh, built Sam Darnold. And the first sentence is, all that's left is the white antique stove in the kitchen where Sam Darnold builds tuna rolls from baggies of fresh-caught bluefin. How'd you come up with that? What were you thinking? Why did you well, do Well, I know. I mean, I just went in. Listen, the idea that the house was a crystal meth lab to me was it was interesting. It was powerful. It, and to be honest, it's evocative of, and I did, I'm not good at making these large points in print. I'm really bad at it. I'm better at doing it in like podcasts afterward. But to me, he was sort of, to me, he and his family are sort of the old school Southern California dream. Like the Southern California dream that I grew up with, where all of these people, all these families who wanted to raise their, their, babies by the water in these beautiful places had to make real sacrifices. They had to, they were all, the term is house poor. They were house poor. They put everything they had into these homes because obviously it's expensive to live here. It was more feasible back then. Um, But they would go in and they would, they would buy these houses by the water and they would have to get real fixers. And this is probably true for everywhere in America or everywhere in the world. But I think it's, it's definitely true, especially in like beach communities in Southern California. And because there are sacrifices that have to be made because the real estate values are so high. And so they found a crystal meth lab and fixed it up. And to me, that was sort of, I don't know, it was evocative of kind of this whole dream sequence that followed where they were able to raise him where they wanted in this really lovely beach town. And that place became a cocoon for him, the home, but also the whole town, the high school. And that for him, I mean, you're talking such a homebody. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was kind of revealing of him. The more I kind of thought about him, I thought about, look, we got, I want to bring it back to the town, but let's get it smaller. So the house and the fact that it was a crystal meth lab and all the work they did on it. And it also sort of signals right off the bat, this is not a situation where it's affluent Orange County. It is, you know, Newport Beach and the private coach and modern day. This guy's different. It's a different situation. Um, And so to me, it was it was perfect. And I just asked them, I asked them to just take me through what they did with the house. You know, when they get this house, um, you know, what you do to kind of 
make it clean, to make it healthy. And so they kind of went through just everything they did. And, and the one thing was that was that stove that, you know, they love, they have an old antique white stove. It's funny, our house, I bought a, a similar situation, a fixer, and I'm in the same situation. I have an antique white stove from like 1940s. So clearly sometimes those personal connections, I think it pieces matter. And when I saw that stove, it reminded me of our stove. And that's sort of why I led with it. It's very interesting because um, we both approach these stories with a unique California perspective. You know, I moved here three years ago from New York and I've been really sort of discouraged by the craziness of sports parents in Orange County. And you come from it as a guy from California who sort of has this fuller, longer experience of being in California. It's kind of it's sort of interesting how your personal experiences with a place influence the narrative that you take. Well, in this story for me, more than maybe any story I've written, because he did his parents, his whole his whole scene, everything kind of reminded me of. You know, my own childhood, the childhood I would have liked to have for my own kids. Like, you know, I mean, my parents bought a house in La Jolla, you know, six blocks from the beach in 1983. And it was probably, I don't know what it was, a hundred and something thousand. And, but they had to scrape and scratch and it was a dump. I don't know if it was a meth lab or a drug den or what it was, but it very easily could have been. And my dad had to do all that stuff and lay the tile and do, you know, had to kind of, they had to scratch for me to grow up in this place that to me, you know, whenever you're in a community like that, the house the lots aren't very big, right? So the houses are close together. So you know, everybody you're outside all the time because the weather's perfect. The beach is a part of your life. And when Darnold was describing his childhood, it just, it was a sports childhood. There was a lot of video games inside. They were outside playing ball, playing right. baseball, all-stars, playing basketball, playing football. And the more I kind of, thought about him I was like this guy's just an athlete I mean he's just a guy who played ball every kind of ball and happened to become a quarterback which is so unlike and this is where I think we probably got to the same spot but he was unlike the kids who grow up like you are going to be a quarterback I am going to be a quarterback and look I think there's some real validity to that because mm -hmm. it it makes you skilled but he grew up as an athlete athlete first um, and I'm sure that's probably how your what your kind of approach was also given because we both, I think, went in with the same preconceived notion, which yeah. is right. In yeah. Some ways. Do you um, do you find um, in covering sports that more kids are kids are young athletes are less inter less interesting is the right word because they've been brought up as sort of sport robots. Do you find less diversity of background experience because of the way kids are raised into sports these days? Yeah, I got to say, though, like doing stories like this, it sort of it sort of energizes me about about young people in sports, um, because, I, you know, I thought he was really just engaging. And some other guys I met, like Cameron Smith, their linebacker. I mean, what an interesting, totally interesting guy. And I mean, almost every year I do one of these. I did Cody Kessler, mm -hmm. I did Brett Hundley from UCLA. It's always like a local quarterback, Barkley. Um, and so, yeah, I, I find them kind of interesting all in their own way. And like Barkley was one of those guys who grew up, you know, who did have the quarterback coach and did go to modern day and all those things. But he's also a dude who was like going to the Getty all the time when he was at SC and could talk to you about religion and politics and the world. And, you know, wanted to go to like, when I wanted to do my interview, we wanted to go to the original El Cholo. And then he took me to meet Louis Zamperini, who was like one of his, he considered a friend right. um, at the time. So, you know, I, I think it's hard to put them in a box, but you know, I do. I think this, you know, the specialization in sports, 
It's interesting, Jeff, because I just wrote a story a few months ago about a kid named Hunter Green who plays oh, yeah. he played baseball at Notre Dame in Sherman Oaks, number two overall pick in the draft, mm-hmm. African-American prodigy. And he was totally sports specific. He only played baseball. I mean, he played baseball probably 70 or 80 games a year. It's a little like what my son does now. It, it was just, he was all baseball. He was so gifted, but he was also so skilled, you know, that all that training made him skilled, but he had an amazing perspective on life. I mean, this was a guy who like read a story that, Homeless people in downtown LA, there was a sock shortage. So he like starts a sock drive and like gets like thousands of pairs of socks. I mean, this guy learned Korean and could play the, you know, violin and he had all of these different. So even though he was sports specific, I didn't necessarily consider him a robot. Um, But I get what you're saying. And I'm sure there are people who are highly robotic. Yeah. But I think they probably come from all different walks. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, You are a. You're big. I, I always, when I read your stuff, I, I am always really, really impressed by the sort of the level of detail. And oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I really am. And you know, like uh, I'm just like your story. He charged down the steep wooden stairs at the San Clemente Cliffs to uh, La Sunt Beach. I don't even know what that is. Um, known as the Lost Winds. Beach. Lost, Lost Winds. Yeah, Lost Winds. So they call it Lost Winds. Oh, yeah. Well, I went there. You know, that's the beauty of being local. <laughs> right. Like you can go there, and all the high school kids are like, "Who's the jerk in the khakis?" Um, but like, yeah, you could kind of go to these places, right? And I mean, that's, that's the beauty of being local. Otherwise you're just, I mean, this is probably what you do. I do. You just, you ask enough follow-up questions, just enough follow-up questions until they look at you like you're crazy. So do you, um, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Out. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, for example, you write, um, friends fought to find the pigskin in the white water, scoring a point for each recovery. The group white bought- wash, I hope it oh. says, did they say white water? It says white water. Oh, oh my God. God. I- I'm going to call them. That's like such an East coast. White water. Oh wow. my god! I know that. You know, I um, I just want to say as an aside, when I was at SI one time, I was doing a, I was doing a story. I know that kills you, by the way. And I, it I, does. I mean, I'm going to call him right now. It reminds me of a story I wrote. Um, I wrote about Stephen Strasburg. He's from San Diego, San Diego State pitcher, threw 100 miles an hour, and I, I was describing a California burrito, and I said like carne asada. It has carne asada with fries inside, which anybody from San Diego knows, mm-hmm. and they put a comma in after carne asada, like it was a carne asada burrito with fries on the side, right. which just killed me, you know, and killed kind of all my cred. So yeah, they'll be getting, that, that is one of those things where they, the editor has to do something, right? He's got to do something. Right. And there were so many, I didn't write for Mark Bechtel as my usually at my usual editor with yeah. this. And when I read the, when they sent me the fit version, I was like, you know, there were just so many things like that. So oh, many yeah. things where they just try to take the soul of the story out. Yeah, it hurts. I um, I was going to say when I was at SI one time, I interviewed, there was a straight, you remember uh, Derek Bell, the former outfielder, major league outfielder? Maybe you don't, but. Um, of course he, I remember uh, Derek Bell. Yeah, yeah, he was a Padre. I remember yeah, number oh, yeah, four. Yeah, yeah, right. And he, uh, he lived on a boat his season with the Mets. And he was really big into rap music. And I talked in the story about how much he loved hip, hip-hop music. And I get a call from a fact checker named, named uh, Linda Marsh. And she says, I hate to ask you this. I'm really embarrassed, but I have to because the editor says, is it hip hop music or hip hip music? And you're like, oh, my God. So hip hip music almost made my story instead of hip hop music. They actually well, had so I have So I have one like that. It's almost as bad as that. Go ahead. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote about Iverson. And there's a quote from Ice Cube. And he's talking about players who retire and he's comparing it to rappers who are retiring and he says um 
you know, just because we retired doesn't mean he said, just because we retired doesn't mean we still, you know, we aren't, what do you say? We retire, but we still be boys. Right. And I put B E mm-hmm. space B O Y S. We still be boys. Right. Like, you know, but it wasn't, it was B boys. It was like B boys, like a rapper. Uh-huh. And so some, one of his PR people calls me and said, Hey, sorry, but he meant like a B boy, uh-huh. like a rapper, not B boys. And I felt also so uncool. Yeah. Common feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate that. But yeah, I'm about to email the editor right now and say, let's whitewash. Jesus Christ. Do you, do you, does that, um, I wasn't even going to go here, but, but do you, um, how do you take editing? Oh, can you tell? Are you, are you a, (laughs) because you remind me in some ways, actually, you remind me of Tim Layden in a very good way. You are. Yeah. I feel like you have an intensity, an intensity about your writing and, because I'm this way too. Like I am attached to the words I use and I use the words for a reason. I remember Gary Smith saying a long time ago, like every word matters. There's a reason you place the words where they are. And when someone just comes along and goes, blah, 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 blah. It drives me insane. I don't know how you deal with it. Well, I have Mark Bechtel. I yeah, have a great, great editor. And yeah. so I, you know, I probably have, I probably have the best editor. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I have, Steve Canella is incredible and Chris Stone is incredible, but I, you know, 98% of my stories are, you know, go through, I have my dad edit every story and then I have Mark Bechtel. So that's kind of, I don't, you know, when Mark has a problem, has an issue and we talk it out, I always sort of get where he's coming from. And listen, I mean, I'm always fine with big, I'm always fine with the big changes, like the big structural stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't get where you're going with this. Um, that stuff I'm okay with. What, but what bugs me is the little things it's whitewash to white water. It's the calm after the carnicide. It's things like that, where it's like someone's it's, it's like a death by a thousand paper cuts. And there's no doubt that I think that used to be a bigger issue at SI probably than it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are plenty of times, listen, I, I need tons of editing. I need, a lot of help, but those little changes, um, those are the ones that kind of kill me. Yeah. I'm the same way. Um, wait to jump back here. Here's what I want to ask you. You're interviewing whoever you're interviewing Sam Darnold and he's talking in sort of broad. He's telling a story about his childhood, but it's very broad as yeah. stories often tend to be. Will you interrupt him? Will you say if he's like, yeah, so we used to go to this taco place and will you interrupt the story and say, Where? well, what was the name of it? Or will you, Hold them till the end. Like, how do you go about getting the details that you want? Depends, right? Like, so every tape I listen to, I always think, like, why are you talking right now? Right. Like, shut your mouth. And I think probably every reporter thinks that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I just had an interview with a player the other day. And, yeah, I mean, he was sort of going and just going in all these directions. that, And you know that you only have a certain amount of time. And you need in a certain amount of attention that you have from your subject. So, I do interrupt at times. And yes, in that situation with the taco shop, I probably did add, I probably did interrupt and I will, unless I think that they're kind of on the verge of something. It's like anything with human interaction. If you think they're about to say something of significance, you let them go and I'll scrawl it, you know, really quickly and like on my sheet of paper or my notebook, like what taco shop name or something like that. Right. Um, but in this case I asked him, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go down there. Where should I go? Um, and he was one of those guy, kind of guys who wanted it. He just seemed to want to help. He seemed yep. to want, he seemed to sort of, I've actually never met somebody like this who kind of, he seemed sort of tickled by the process yep. and sort of delighted by it, but also not in an 
unhealthy way, like not in a showman way. Like, I don't think he really, uh, I don't think it meant a lot to him, but I also don't think he was bothered by it. He just seemed really comfortable in his own skin. I actually agree with that. I thought, so I sat down with him for maybe an hour um, yeah, in the same similar. place you did. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, this is a guy who doesn't need this, but doesn't mind it. Right? That's exactly, that's well put. That's perfectly put. Right. Yes. Way better than I put it. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Doesn't need it, but doesn't mind. No, at the end, he said something like, well, this was fun. <laughs> <You> <laughs> know? So, I don't know. My fun. favorite thing is he shows up for the interview when I did it, and he has these giant yellow sweat stains on his T-shirt armpits. And I thought, this really is a guy who is not looking to impress me. And I thought no. that was cool. I love that. You He's know? just a dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just kind of a, a real dude. Yeah, I thought so. You, um, one thing I liked in your story, a point that I really enjoyed, was you said um, super is his adjective of choice. His parents are super chill. His mom is super emotional. And uh, so-and-so's family is super yeah. nice. Um, is this like, are you interviewing him and he's just using this word repeatedly and you're kind of making a mental note to yourself? Do you write it down in a notepad? Do you write super and circle it down? Like I just, it's when I went through the transcript. Uh, you know, you go through the transcript and like you kind of look for, I'm really bad. I'm really bad at like talking about how people look. You know, some people are really good at that, like mm -hmm. describing someone's face or their jaw. And I don't know. Part of me feels like sometimes a little weird about it. Like I, I don't love commentary on how someone looks and their appearance, right. but I also am just not, not very good at it in general. Right. But with speech pattern, I feel like that's, I'm a little more comfortable with that. And he just had such a, he just had such a, like a surf pattern, sort of his, I know there's something about his cadence that just, um, again, like kind of took me back to sort of where he was from so much. And, um, yeah, so I kind of, I kind of use that, but it, what's funny is I've sort of noticed about it, it's in general, people use the word super as an adjective. Cause since I wrote that, I've kind of, you know, your antenna's up to it and I do it myself. And a lot of people, a lot of people do it. But yeah. What I'll try to do is like with a situation like that, and you do this you do this all the time, but like people would say about Frank DeFord, like that he put out bells and he tried to ring the bell later. And mm -hmm. I, I try to think about that. So like when I have a line like that, like super, super chill or super emotional or super bummed, whatever it was he said, you know, I'm trying to, I'm sort of making a mental note to myself. Hey, later in the story, this might not be a bad play if it comes up organically to try to ring that bell again, you know, and there are certain things you do during a story. So I remember thinking when I wrote the super line, like, Hey, maybe try to do this at the end and bring back something like super chill, um, in reference to something, you know, which I did. And, and then I had some little line from the grandfather about like, don't go be a big shot that I tried to bring back too. So that was something like DeFord was incredible at. And I feel like so many SI writers are, are really good at, and I try to, you know, I, I can't keep pace, but I try to. Yeah. Um, I'll throw a weird one at you. And I kept, I kept thinking about this during the interview. All right. So when I, um, when I was covering yeah. baseball, there was an outfielder. You remember Jermaine Dye, obviously. Yeah, of course. And oh, I was well, young, amazed. I was a pretty young writer and Jermaine Dye had a big, like scratch mark across his face, like a cut knife. It looked like someone cut mm -hmm. his face with a knife. And I profiled Jermaine Dye and I never asked him about it. And I always thought, why the hell didn't I ask Jermaine Dye about that? And it's interesting. So Sam Darnold has like a birthmark on his chin. Huh. And I was sitting there because when I was growing up, I had like a birthmark and my brother used to make fun of me incessantly about it, incessantly about it. Um, and I kept thinking, should I ask him about this? You know, like, because it's kind of unique. And if someone drew a picture of him, they would draw that in there. If someone was doing like a sketch of him, they would make it part of it. 
do you ask people about stuff like that? Do you, if a guy has, if a guy has a lisp, if a guy has a whatever tattoos, blah, blah, blah. Do you go to that? I'm not big on the tattoos. Um, maybe I should be, but I find it a little cliche at this point. Mm -hmm. If Drew Brees was great on this. I remember he has a birthmark on his right. cheek and it had been written about before I interviewed him. So I kind of knew it was fair game. And he has these great stories about when he was a kid, like he'd be at like a dance and the girl would kind of lick her thumb and try to like rub the dirt off his cheek. Right. And he'd have to tell them it's a birthmark. And it became like this birthmark became sort of a thing at Purdue, I remember. Um, so I did ask him in that situation, would I ask him about a birthmark? I'd ask about a scar. I think I'd be more likely to ask about a scar. I try to ask about different things. I remember – when you were at the Tennessean, did you write a story about Paige Redman, a Vanderbilt women's basketball player whose brother killed himself? Did you write no, a story about that? No, I did not. Okay, so I, when I was a – I think I was only a freshman. I went to Vanderbilt, and I interviewed her. She's a great, great point guard, and she had a pendant around her neck that had a J. It was a J. And I said, like, what's up with the pendant? It's a J. You know, if it was a P or an R, I wouldn't right. have I've probably asked, but the J, I was like, yeah. I should probably follow that. And she told this whole story about her brother and how he, you know, and how he'd taken his life and, um, you know, where she was and how it had affected her and everything like that. And so that was one of those moments where I sort of thought, you know, you got to ask those sorts of things. So like with Darnold, he comes in, you know, I asked the skateboard was obviously homemade. Hmm. It wasn't a great story or anything about the skateboard, but I'll, you know, you'll ask. It's like, you never know where those, if you pull enough of those threads, some of them will come through for you. Some yeah. won't. Yeah. Um, one thing I was impressed by in your story is you, uh, you mentioned that he's in a fraternity and his parents to me were not happy. He was in a fraternity and I think didn't really want me to mention it. Really? Yeah. I think they were kind of annoyed actually. So I thought that was That's kind of funny. Fun. They seemed okay with it. When I, it's so funny. Those people, should, they've really done a lot of interviews. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they mentioned he he's Lambda Kai and they mentioned that Jake Russell is like his best friend had said to the mom, said to Chris, um, he's a really good fraternity brother. <laughs> and, and I think she looked at him and said, who cares? Like, right, right, right. like the subtext being like, my son is a USC quarterback. He may be the number one pick. I don't really care how he did in his pledge with his pledge duties. Right. Uh, but no, I asked them like, what's pledging like when you're the starting quarterback and I guess they go a little easier on you and stuff like that. So I, I thought it could yield something, but that for me was, that was an item that um, that wound up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I actually you know, it just um, wasn't. I didn't think it was that. And, and I learned that enough football players are in this fraternity that it wasn't that unique. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, how long did it take you to write the story? What do you do? Do you first of all you do all the interviews? Do you transcribe your own tape? Yeah. Did yeah, you consider that an important part of the process? Not really. Not really. I just don't know where to go. I don't know who to. I mean, I'm not going to pay someone to do it, and I'm. I don't. I don't really trust the services and i use kind of an old not an old not an old tape recorder but like it's just a regular digital tape recorder so um no i do it myself and it, you know what maybe there is some importance to it because when you read when you hear it over i think there's something about listening to the voice again you know you might pick up different things but yeah. i mean my writing process it's funny because i saw you i saw you tweeted a picture of yourself like writing late the night i'm assuming the story was due i didn't know what yeah. you were writing about yeah. but i saw a tweet of you doing that um I don't tweet pictures of myself when I'm writing. <laughs> Maybe I should. But, I mean, it's usually a three-day I, – I love to have three days. With, you know, this story wasn't that long. It was only 
3000 words. That's kind of, right. that's kind of standard. I mean, if I have three days, cause then if I sweat the lead a little bit and take a while, like I like to think right first section, the first day, um, I mean, I feel like such a diva saying this. Like I used to write these kinds of write stories like this when I was at newspapers, you know, like two hours, but yeah, I mean, I'll probably take a day and write that first section. Then it usually second day, second section, third day, you know, finish it off and stay up late. Maybe one of those nights or something. That's usually if I can get that kind of time, but you know, in the NBA playoffs, you can't, sometimes you can't. So you're better than I am because I'll take three days. I'll give myself three days. And the first day, I'll watch the endings to, like, all of the Rocky movies. The second day, I'll eat a lot of toast and go to the gym. And then the <laughs> third day, I'll have 2,500 to 3,000 words due. Oof. And I'll just stay up till 5 in the morning writing yeah, it. Yeah. But you know what? Sometimes it can be the best stuff. Like, I mean, I've done that for so many NBA finals. Like, game ends on a Sunday night or Super Bowl. You know, for SI, you got to pull that all night or get it in for Monday morning. And... Sometimes it's your best stuff. I mean, sometimes you kind of that adrenaline is working for you and you don't really get in your own way because that happens to me so much. As a, if I know I've got the three days, I'm like sitting there kind of crafting and yeah. being so painstaking about it. And, you know, sometimes our best stuff just sort of it just comes. You can't really you can't really plan it. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a final question. Uh, journalism going through a very weird and confusing time right now. Yeah. I mean, you see it as Sports Illustrated and. All over the place. Weird, weird, weird. Do you, uh, some kid comes to you, whatever, some kid at Syracuse or yeah, Delaware. Yeah, I just had a lunch like this two, uh, a few hours ago. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you tell them to go into journalism? You know, I tell them, when I, when I was at Vanderbilt, I had this great old professor, creative writing professor. Actually, my wife and I met in his class. And I was doing really well in the class. You know, I was getting A's and it was just purely creative writing, fiction, some creative nonfiction. And at the end of the class, I asked him, you know, do you think I should be a novelist? You guys should like bag journalism and be a novelist. And he said, if you have to. And that's a line I always use with like young writers, um, young sports writers. It's like, if you have to. I felt like when I was coming out of college, there was already problems. And but I felt like I had to. It wasn't I didn't really there wasn't anything else I really wanted to do or thought about. And there are enough young people making this work. You know, I mean, the guy who wrote, uh, Zach Helfand, who wrote this story that we're talking about, Sam Darnold, he wrote a great profile in the LA Times. He's like like 10 years old or something. <laughs> um, I mean, he's right out of college. And so there are young people who are making this work. Um, but yeah, I feel as though we're all sort of like, it's like a scene in a cartoon where like the train's bearing down the tracks and we're all kind of running out ahead of it and sort of just you know, it's like, can we make it to wherever we're trying to make it? I, I don't know. But for as long as what I, I try, honestly, Jeff, not to think about it too much and try to focus on like the reporting and the writing and the work and hope that people smarter than I am will figure out a way to make that turn that into a feasible life for myself and my family. Yeah. And I don't know if they will or not. I feel like you probably sleep better about this than I do. Because I worry about it all. The I, time. I sleep pretty well about it. I yeah. do. I mean, I don't. I try. I just, I just pour it into the work and like. And the other thing is, I live three thousand miles away from the office, so I don't. I'm insulated from a lot of those politics. I work for the greatest. I work for the, the three or four greatest people there are. So they've insulated me, you know, so much where it's just it's do your work, do your stories. I don't hear about my metrics. I don't know how much web traffic it's driving. 
you know, I try to be immune to all that and just write the best story I can and keep it as much as like when I came out of college and it was 2000 and it was basically all we were judged on was if your editor said, Hey, good story right. at the end of the night or good job. That was, that was enough. And I, I try to like keep it as simple as that because otherwise I just, I don't really know what else I can control. You know what I mean? All I can control is like good pieces. And I have to believe good pieces about relevant sports will be okay. I mean, I feel lucky to cover the NBA because the NBA does seem right now like it's like, it just has this, this buzz to it, this growth to it um, that I hope will make the stories around it last. Yeah. That's well said. I actually agree with you. I think that's the place to be right now in sports. If you're going to be covering a sport. Um, but, I, but I have to believe college football's like that too in the NFL. I mean, I, I don't, it's, it's like when I'm down in Orange County and talking to people, eh, those big high school programs, they're not hurting. No. I mean, and that's, I always thought Orange County would be the first place we would see sort of the fall of football yeah. because those families are affluent. The kids don't, they don't have to play football. You know, there are other options. They can do water polo, they can do baseball, whatever. But those numbers at those high schools are still really strong. So whenever I do a story like this, I always ask the coaches, like, how are, how are your numbers? Are there any attrition, you know, any families going other way? And I don't think they're seeing it. If they're not seeing it in Orange County, they're not going to see it in Texas and the South for a long time. Yeah, that's well said, actually. I haven't thought of it in that way, but I, I do think you're right. Um, well, listen, Lee, I uh... – I'm conceding this one. You won this battle. No, man. Yeah, I, but, but, <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all a giant tapestry, man. I know. Um, but thank you so much for doing this. I really, seriously, I'm a, I'm a, I mean, you'd admire if you were oh, thanks, for a long man. time. You too. Back at you, of course. And now ESPN is going to come in because we've done this. They'll like crush both of us. Yeah, so. exactly. Molly um, Knight is next. But that'll be fine. That's the thing. You just you move on to the next one. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with you. All right, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it, buddy. I want to thank today's guest, Lee Jenkins, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. One can follow Lee on Twitter at SI underscore Lee Jenkins, and you can go to SI.com to read his stuff. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on both iTunes and on Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. The music, again, is by MC White Owl. Thank you so much for joining me, and remember, keep riding. Keep riding.